the National Archives podcast series, Traces Through Time, a new tool for finding linked records across our collections. Presented by Sonia Ranaday. This talk was recorded on the 3rd of October 2016 at the National Archives, Kew. Um, so, as Alex said, I'm going to talk about the Traces Through Time project, a little bit about where the project came from and the work we've been doing. Um, so, it started really in 2013 when the Arts and Humanities Research Council put out a call for projects um, under this theme of digital transformations in the arts and humanities, which are big words and, and kind of a big theme. And within that, and they were after big ideas. And they didn't want particularly theoretical projects. It was about tangible outputs um, and making something, making tools or making methods. So this was perfect for us. Um, the timing was perfect because we had a big idea that we thought would fit the bill. And um, we put forward a project, which was Traces Through Time, which was about linking the people who appear in the records. There are lots of people in our records. Although we collect government records, lots of them are very name-rich. Um, so there are millions of people in there. We know most people are probably only there once, but with all those millions of records, even if a small proportion are in there several times over, that's a lot of links to find. Um, so that was the project, and they funded us. And getting that funding was a real opportunity. We were interested in this before, but it had been best endeavours trying to look at this around all the other things that we had to do. And having the money from the AHRC really let us put together the right team to do the project um, and to do it seriously and try and make some progress with it. We needed a huge range of skills. I won't read them out, but they're, they're up there on the screen. Um, it, you know, this certainly was a pro wasn't a project that any one person could have done. And we didn't at that time have all these skills here at TNA. Um, so it was a very collaborative approach. I've worked with colleagues from across the office. Some people have dipped in and given me particular bits of advice on, on a particular issue. And others, particularly some colleagues from ARC, have come in and joined the team um, and really contributed their expertise and made the project what it is. And that academic funding also meant we could bring in partners from outside, from academia. Um, and in particular, we didn't have natural language processing expertise at the time, and we didn't have the statistical modelling expertise. And it was really good to be able to bring that in and to work with people who were real specialists in those areas. We needed research questions because it was an academic project. Um, and we had, we had lots of research questions, but the technical ones um, were the three there. So our records are very diverse, and we needed to find ways that would work across all of those records from different time periods and different, different types of records. We'd done a lot of work at the time to bring together access in discovery, so to have one point of access for all of our collections. And we couldn't go back to creating little systems that just worked with parts of the collections. That, that's not really sustainable for us to do. So one of the questions was, was it possible to do something that would work across the board for everything? Our data is not clean or modern data. It's messy. It was created for different purposes and at different times. Um, there's a lot of fuzziness in it. We can't do data cleansing by just calling those people and asking them. It's historical data. So we needed to be able to work with that. And because it's so messy, we knew we weren't going to have a lot of certainty in any links that we found. There would be probably a link or maybe a link. Um, and so we needed to qualify them. We needed to try and put some kind of figure to each link to say how confident are we that actually these two records that we've linked are really about the same person. Um, and that was something that was hard, and we didn't at the beginning know how to do that. So this is an example of what it's about. 
If you search Discovery for Alfred Meinl, you'll get a huge number of hits, including the 10 records there. And if I asked anyone in this room to sort those out, to work out which of those records relate to the same person, um, I think you could do it. It's something that, that people do quite intuitively. And you would compare the names and the spellings and the addresses. Um, and you'd look at things like how common a name is Alfred or Meinl. Um, and a human being would be able to, to sort that out without too much trouble. Um, and we needed to capture that knowledge that people apply when they do this task um, and build that into algorithms to do it automatically because computers can do it at scale and can do it quickly and consistently in a way that we can't. What people are quite bad at doing is putting a confidence measure to this. So um, we can say, yes, we think they're probably the same person, but are they all equally good? Um, we don't know. That's something that we can automate. So... We don't have to guess whether Alfred Meinl is a common name. We've got all that data. We can process that data and we can work out the numbers. So that aspect of it um, can be quite readily automated and we can probably do that better and more consistently than a person could do. So we made a process for doing the linker. Um, Five-stage pipeline. I'm not going to give you a crash course in how to do this, um, but I am going to just show you some of the things we found out at each stage along the way. So the first stage there is data cleansing and standardization. And one of the challenges was all the different types of data that we have to deal with and accommodate in this project. So there are two examples there. Um, the first, the top right, is um, an example from an early record. Um, this is, there's a lot of text there. It's very rich, lots of information in this record. It's quite narrative, but it does have a structure. So people were writing about the same types of things over and over again. They had quite formulate ways of expressing that. It's small data. We aren't dealing with millions and millions of records of this kind. The second record there, the modern record, um, it's a form. So the same every time. Although there are annotations on that form. There are places where the things people needed to write didn't quite fit, so they've been squeezed in somewhere. It's big data, millions of records here, and it's only partially transcribed. Um, the scale that we're working at, we can't possibly key in everything that it says on every one of these pages. So we have to pick out the information that we think is going to be the most valuable um, and key that. So we have limited access to all of that information that's present in the original. And to do this project, we had to be able to take these very different types of data and make them into a data set that we could work with. So another example, um, an early record here. Lots of text, very rich, and there are lots of people named in this record. So those are, those are the people on the page. But it's not that easy to pull them out. We have to understand something about the record and about the kinds of things that it's telling us to be able to do that. So this is one person. Edmund, son of Richard, King of Almain, Earl of Cornwall. So his name's Edmund. He's the Earl of Cornwall. He's also identified by his relationship to his father. So all of that description is about one person. In the same paragraph there, there's another Richard, but that's a completely different person. And so analysing this automatically, we need to be able to try and sort out these relationships. There's another one, Gilbert de Clare, Earl of Gloucester and Hartford, and his wife Joan, and here his refers to Gilbert. So again, we, we need to try and sort that out. And then later on, they're referred to again as the Earl and Countess, and that's the same people. So this data was keyed by a volunteer who would have understood it. Um, this was Jess Nelson's project, and I did say to Jess at the time, wouldn't it be great if that volunteer could tag up the names of the people to save us having to do all this natural language processing to sort it out? 
Um, and she said quite rightly that there was a real limit to what we can do manually and there was a limit to how much time that individual would be able to spend on it. Uh, so no was her answer, rightly, I think. Um, but what the volunteer did do was to tag up the places in the record um, and to give the modern equivalent names um, of the names that appear. So they did do a bit of extra effort and that kind of effort might be something that's a little bit easier to do automatically. It's, and it's still challenging, but it's less of a challenge than sorting out those names. So I think there's something here when we do our projects that we need to really understand what's possible so that we can get computers to do the things that computers can do and get people to do the things that people are good at and perhaps use our efforts slightly differently to the way we do now and hopefully get a better result. That's the modern record again. So... This is the record of uh, Florence McCarthy, who changed his name as a man to Frederick Carter. And that's the way we present it on Discovery. And we've made a nice narrative out of the name, Carter alias McCarthy, Frederick alias Florence. Um, and there are some other pieces of information there, so um, date of birth and date of enlistment. And that's the way it's held behind the scenes in Discovery. And it's really nice, it's really structured data. Um, but there are still issues with it. So we've had to put both those surnames into the same field in Discovery and both the forenames into the same field. And that, there's a potential for confusion there. So he probably wasn't ever called Florence Carter or Frederick McCarthy, but we can't tell that from the way we've held the data. And the reason for that is that Discovery has to accommodate a lot of different data and it has a relatively small number of fields and we kind of have to squeeze it in in any way we can. But to do this linking, we want to capture everything that we know there's really not a lot of information there about the person. There's a name and a date of birth. The other information might be useful if we're linking to another service record, but if we're linking to different kinds of records, it's not going to be that valuable. So we don't want to throw anything away. We, we wanted a way um, to, to capture everything that we knew. So to be able to say, actually, he was called Florence McCarthy first, and then he changed his name. So we have a data model for traces through time. And the idea of this data model is that we could hold information about every person who appears in the records, whether that's modern information where we have names and dates of birth and service numbers, or the older information where we perhaps know someone's name and their title and perhaps their father's name or their wife's name, and there's a place for everything. So this is Frederick Carter again, and we can put in his names and dates of birth and split everything out so that we can use it and reuse it and we've held the muck separately to the McCarthy in McCarthy because um, we quite often see those particles getting separated from the names in records, so we want to be able to break them up to compare them both ways. And we can get his service history in and the record that we originally found him in so that we can relate this person back to the record in the archives that that piece of data came from. And for any one person, most of this is going to be empty. It's, it's rare that we will know all those things about someone, but that's fine. That's all right. We can work with that. So in an older record, if we didn't have a surname, we can leave it blank. There's, there are no mandatory data elements in here. So the linker works over this data and compares people um, and decides whether they have anything in common, whether they might be the same person. And then we apply some statistical reasoning to try and work out how likely it is that they're the same. So in this example, Charles Oscar... Charles Carl Oscar V. Alborn and Charles Carl Oscar Valentine Alborn, um, would you bet on these being the same person? Lots of nodding. 
it looks pretty likely, doesn't it? We've got five names. I mean, in one case, we have an initial rather than a full name. But still, I think we can kind of agree that looks pretty plausible. What about this, this pair? Only four names. Again, for one of them, we have an initial in one record and a full name in the other. It still looks reasonable. And that one, slightly less reasonable because we're down to two initials, but still quite plausible. Harry William Holmes and Harry Holmes. We've got an extra name, but actually we do see middle names being dropped in records. Not, not every record would capture someone's full name. Um, but Harry Holmes, slightly more, more common name, perhaps. And there's another Harry Holmes. We can't tell just from that whether those are three separate people or, or the same person. There's another one. That one looks pretty good until we see that there's someone else in the records called Frank Blashfield Ramsey. So who is Frank B. Ramsey in the middle? Which one should we link him to? Um, and in practice, we'd link him to both, and we would just say it was a link with low confidence. We wouldn't try to sort this out for the researcher. Um, it's about providing pointers rather than trying to come out with a kind of definitive view um, of which records relate to the same individual. And William Jones, um, a really common name, uh, it's in the 1939 register data. It is almost as common as John Smith. And I think if you were to look at more modern data, it, it would be um, above John Smith. I think John has declined in popularity as a first name, um, and William is still pretty popular. So when you get names like that, there's really nothing much we can do. Even with a date of birth, I still wouldn't bet on that being the same individual. There's not a great deal we can do. And so that's where the statistics feeds into the linking, this knowledge of um, distributions of all these values in our data. And because we've got big data, we can get them from the data directly. So if we want to know whether William is a popular name and we've got millions of records, we can look at them. We don't have to go outside for them. Um, and that's one of the advantages of having so much data to work with. This is another example. So in the one we've just looked at, having more data meant more confidence. If you had several names instead of just a couple of names, that's better. But that relies on the names having no correlation. So it relies on us being able to say, actually, the fact that you've got one attribute has no bearing on the fact that you've got another. And we know that that's not true. We know that there are some correlations in the data. And that's where our model breaks down. And we have to try and do something different. So this is just an example, um, of quite, quite an extreme example of a correlation. This is a plot of all the men with one particular name plotted by their date of birth. And what we see is that if you have this name, more, more than half of the people with this name were born on the same day. Um, so we would normally say, well, your date of birth's got no bearing on your forename, has it? That, that's separate. We can treat that as uncorrelated data, as independent data, but not always. So the next stage in that pipeline that we looked at was optimization. Um, and this is where big data is no longer our friend. So when we want stats and distributions, it's great to have so much to work with. Um, but when we need to process it all, actually, that becomes quite challenging. To compare people, we essentially need to compare every person in one series with every person in another series. And the number of comparisons we have to do potentially is, is the number in this series times the number in that series. So for small series, ADM 240 and ADM 340, 28,000 records in one, nearly 6,000 records in the other. These are not huge series. If we did compare every person in one with every person in the other, we would do nearly 167 million comparisons. And that's quite a lot. Even for a computer, that's quite a lot of work to do. That's, that's too much, really, to make that a reasonable thing to just do. As we start to work with bigger series, um, it gets proportionally bigger. So it's, it's square, effectively. So the biggest ones we've worked with are Air 76 and Air 79, 100,000 records in one, 300,000 records in the other. 
And if we did it in that way, where we compared every record with every other record, that would be more than 30 billion comparisons. Um, and we'd be here not, not just for weeks, we'd be here for months or years. That It's just not a reasonable amount of processing to do. So there's work we can do to make the linker run faster. Um, and we had a developer working with us, uh, Jeremy Charlet, who's, who's left now, who did a huge amount of work to just make the code run faster. But also there are optimization techniques that we can use so that we have to do less so that we can um, filter out some of those pairs very early on in the process without expending too much effort and get the number of comparisons down. So for the small series, it comes down to 227,000 comparisons, which is quite manageable. And even for those big series, 32 million, that's, that's a reasonable number. We can do that. We can process that. The question mark at the bottom is because we haven't looked at the very huge ones yet. So ADM188, more than half a million records, and WO372, more than 5 million. Um, I don't know how long that would take. Uh, I think we still need to do more to make it quicker to do those. But it, they're kind of almost in our grasp. So we could chop them up and do them in chunks um, and get through them in that way. But there's a little bit more work to be done there. We can process, I've got a figure, we can process two buckets. If we, if we chuck records into buckets and of a million each, um, we can do that overnight. So we're getting close, but we're not quite there yet. So, having done all that linking, we can learn from it and make it better. These two records are from MH47 and WO372. One is of Percy Thomas Boulenois, and one is Percy, or in discovery as Percy J. Boulenois. So these were pulled out as links because it's quite an unusual surname and there's a possibility that they're the same person. But it was scored quite low, very low confidence, because actually one has a middle name of Tom Thomas and the other has the middle initial J. So they're probably not the same person. We then linked to the Commonwealth War Graves Commission's database to this record, which is Percy Thomas Boulenois again. And this record linked um, with quite good confidence to both of those. So it linked to MH47 because the name is identical, and it linked to WO372 because the name is similar, but also there's a service number which is similar. So we've got two similar data attributes. So we have this pattern of two records that wouldn't have linked, but they both linked to another, and that's a pattern that we can look at. And um, when you look at the record, you can see that he should be T, Percy T. Bullenwan. That's been mistranscribed as a J. And the service number, there's a, a fold in the card right on the service number. <laughs> um, and I can't actually read it. I don't know whether it's a, a 7 or an 8, but it's, it's quite plausible that it's an 8. Um, so we can learn these patterns because we see this again and again. And we can say, actually, in a record of this age that was handwritten originally, it's possible that we've captured a T as a J. And we can feed that back into the linker so that next time round, we would have linked those directly and the confidence would have been a little bit higher. We've got Henry Alexander Lawler and Harry Alexander Lawler, both born on the 4th of March, 1892. And if it wasn't for the Henry-Harry discrepancy, this would be a really high-confidence match. It would, it would look good. Um, but one's called Henry and one's called Harry. So again, we can look at patterns of matches where they differ by just one attribute. And if we see a pattern where quite often that difference is Henry or Harry, we can learn it. So we might have known um, that someone called Henry might call themselves Harry, but the point of this is we didn't have to know. We didn't have to compile lists of alternative names or lists of variations. They have come out of the data. So we do need those lists, but we don't have to compile them as a separate exercise. And we can build this pattern into the linker, and again, we can use it to make our confidence scoring better.
And this is a similar example with dates. So two records for Joseph Tysack Hetherington Grant, born on the 14th of July. One says 1892 and the other 1893. And actually, given what we know about how unusual some of these names are, it's actually it's more likely that they're the same person and that there's an error in the date of birth than that they're different people. And we can learn this pattern as well, and we can work out the chances that the date of birth is out by one year and feed that back in, um, and it makes our confidence better and better. So the more we link, the better we get at it. And we can join it all up. So, so far, we've linked 20 series of First World War service records, and um, there's 14 on this diagram. don't know why. So where there are quite faint lines, there are a few people who appear in both the record series, and where the lines are stronger, there are lots of um, overlaps between the two. Um, So some series have a lot of crossover, and some don't have very much at all. And this fits really well with what our record specialists told us at the beginning, and it fits with what we say in our reader guides. So that's quite nice, um, nice kind of confirmation that we might be doing something right here. And having linked it all up, we wanted to put it into Discovery. We didn't put every link into Discovery, just the ones that had a reasonable confidence. We didn't want to clutter it up with lots of very low confidence links. So there are about half a million links, just over half a million links that have been published so far. The web team worked with us on this, the user experience specialists, um, to design the feature and to try and communicate what it was and to put it onto the Discovery page. And at the beginning, we thought all that wasted space on the right-hand side of the discovery page would be a great place to put this. Um, And that's what this is. We put it there, and it's got kind of a confidence rating, these coloured circles, like a star rating. And they tested this. And in the testing, the users just couldn't see it. And we don't know why, but we think maybe that's where they expect to see adverts on the right-hand side of a page. So perhaps we just filter that out if there's content there. So it's been moved, and in the version that's live now, it's at the bottom of the discovery page. And this isn't perfect because it's, it's a long way down. There's nothing at the top to signpost that it's there. It's not there for every record, only the ones that have got links. So um, I don't know whether users will learn to look for it or not. And the web team are doing some work on the discovery details page um, as a whole to try and just tidy it up a little bit. And so I hope that while they're doing that, they will look at this too. Um, it's not the most important thing on the page. I don't think it should be at the top, although I'd love it to be. Um, but it would be nice if it was a little bit more visible. So we need to find out how to do that and test that. So this is the actual feature. It's called Other Possible Matches. Um, It's badged as a beta to indicate that we're going to keep refining it and testing it. Um, People can offer feedback, and we've had some really nice, really positive feedback. And there's this text which tries to explain what it is, and the text needs to strike a balance between saying, this is great, look at this, and saying, actually, we haven't checked these. These aren't recommendations. Follow these links at your own risk. (laughs) So I don't know if we've quite struck that balance, um, but it was felt very important to have that. There was a lot of uneasiness, actually, within TNA about putting something out on Discovery that was just computer-generated, that hadn't been checked in any way at all. If we take this further, we could get to something like this. So at the moment, we're only interested in the same person, finding the records of that one individual. But we could link related people or families and when we do that we start to see these networks of links building up so this example the record in the middle 
is a memorial tablet of uh, Samuel Jardine Window and William Tomlinson Window. So from the same family because they're associated on the same memorial tablet. And this is a Gloucestershire Archives record, but it's in Discovery. So all of the, the catalogue data on this page is held in Discovery, which makes it very much easier to link up other archives material. The two records on the left are British Library records about Samuel, and the two on the right are TNA records about William. Um, and it's just an example of how, if we then went on to link those records to others, we would eventually get a, a quite a big network of links. And we don't have any way of showing this in Discovery. So all we can show in Discovery at the moment is one record at a time and the relationships that that one individual record has. We, we can't kind of give this, this bigger picture of linked data. So that's kind of the future, maybe. So the next things we're going to link are two truly external collections. So these aren't held in Discovery at all. We're going to link a small collection of records from Staffordshire Archives, um, which are appeals against conscription, so similar to the records that we have um, for Middlesex in MH47. It wouldn't be traces through time if we didn't also look at some of the names in the data. This is what we actually do all day. We talk about linking, but what we do is look at funny names. So uh, this is uh, another nice example of correlation. So um, both of these men were born in Jubilee years, in uh, 1897 and 1887, and one of them is called Diamond Jubilee, Alexandra Diamond Jubilee as his middle names, and the other is called Prince Albert, which is lovely. This is one of the longest names we've found in the data. All of that is one person. Uh, I don't know if I can read it out, actually. <laughs> Will of the most, most high, most mighty and excellent, Francoise Marie Anthony Balbi, Count of Savella, Marquis of Arara Grandi of Spain, otherwise... His Excellent Francis Marie Anthony Balby, actual gentleman to His Most Catholic Majesty of Sansal Peace. I don't know what an actual gentleman is. <laughs> um, but this does start to push the limits of the data model, actually. So when we said we would accommodate um, data about anyone who appeared in the records, we, we didn't really have this individual in mind. Um, but it, it needs to fit. Um, this is um, Commonwealth War Graves Commission data. So... You saw at the beginning with that example um, of the modern record that we need to kind of chop it up and put the separate bits into the right place in the data model. And one of the things we want to get is the rank for a military record. Um, and this caused great trouble, actually, because uh, this person, Sergeant Major Cahill, Major is his forename, um, and his rank is Sergeant, caused all kinds of bother with pulling out the data. So uh, Colonel Brooke is actually a private. Major Phillips is a lance corporal and Captain Law, another private. I do wonder what their parents were thinking of. <laughs> These are our favourite names. Lovely correlation between surname and forename here. Christmas holiday and time of day. And I, I feel for time of day. Um, Mark Bell, who's our researcher on this project, developed a bit of an obsession with time of day, actually, and researched him in the records. And he's a real person. Um, so there he is. That's his, his birth, marriage and death. On the death register, it's obviously it's been treated as, as a forename and a middle name, time of. So he's just become time day on the death. He's, he's time o day on his marriage. Um, but there he is on the birth certificate. Um, he's in the census, 1901 and 1911. 1911, he's there with his family. Um, his sister seems to have got away with being called Mary Elizabeth. <laughs> Um, and there he is again um, in the service records. 
Navy service record and an Air Force service record. And on that Air Force record, the clerk has had a bit of fun. It's written half past two. <laughs> Thank you. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives, all rights reserved. It is available for reuse under the terms of the Open Government Licence.